0: This is episode 22 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I'm Carly Cade, and today I have thriller author Connie Johnson-Hambly on the show. Connie grew up on a New York dairy farm. After receiving her law degree, she moved to Boston and wrote for Bloomberg Businessweek, Nature, Mass High Tech, and other media outlets as she honed her skills of reaching readers at a deep emotional level with great research, laser sharp focus on detail, and persuasive writing. Her high-concept thrillers feature remarkable women entangled in modern-day crimes and walk the reader on the razor's edge between good and evil. Connie delights in creating worlds where the good guys win, eventually. Her short stories Giving Voice and Black Ice won acceptance in Best New England Crime Stories, Windward and Snowbound, respectively, published by Level Best Books, and The Brew was published by Mystery Weekly Magazine. The third book in the Jessica trilogy, The Wake, joins the Charity and the Troubles. Connie is a two-time winner of Best English Fiction Literary Award at the Equus International Film Festival in New York City. She is president and featured speaker of the New England chapter of Sisters in Crime, a member of Mystery Writers of America, and a board member of New England Crime Bake. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. A podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to have my author friend, Connie Johnson-Hambly, on the show. Hi, Connie. Hey there, Carly. Good to see you. It's been so long since I've actually had a chance to talk to
1: you, because the last time we saw each other was at the Equus Film Festival in New York City a couple of years ago now, and it's, it's great to see you.
0: Oh, it's so good to see you too. And I'm so excited to have you here today and talk about your adventures and in writing horse books. And yeah, the last time we did see each other face to face was 2016. I mean, we've been staying in touch and following each other and 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 seeing what's going on, but yeah, it's been a while since we've talked, so this is going to be an exciting interview. <laughs> it is,
1: it is, and I have to say that um, you won best Western fiction. I had won best English fiction, and I've been keeping tabs on all that you've been doing. And it's so exciting to watch your writing career flourish.
0: Oh my goodness, thank you. And you know, getting that feedback is so special, particularly from another author that I totally respect, who's also an award winner. So. So thank you for, for saying that, and, and I'm so excited to, to share with the listeners more about you and your books. So uh, we're going to hop into the interview here. I, was, you know, I had a lot of fun galloping around your website and um, pulling together and doing research for the questions that I sent over to you, and, and one of the things that really made me smile was your, your website introduces you as, as saying, what happens when a Boston lawyer decides to chuck her career out the window to write fiction? So tell us a little bit about that decision to leave law, that's a big deal, and pursue a career as an author. Like This is what started everything for you, right? I
1: know, I know. And first off, I have to say that my parents weren't exactly thrilled when I decided to chuck over a (laughs) law career and a career in banking to go into uh, writing fiction. And, And not to disparage my brethren in the legal community, but there are a lot of similarities between writing really good fiction and writing the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've done a lot of talks out there about how um, when you're trying to craft a really great story, and as well as craft a really great uh, legal argument, what you're doing is you you have a world in your head and as well you know what's in your head doesn't mean anything it has to get onto the page but even getting onto the page isn't enough because you want that story or that argument legal argument to bloom in your readers minds right mm-hmm. so it's very important to get that um illusion down on paper. And with a legal argument, what you're doing is you're, you're using precedent, you're using that reader's bias or the prosecutor's bias uh, in such a way that you're, you're pulling them into your narrative. And that's exactly what we do as authors. You know, we have a world in our head. We know that what we're writing is really only half the battle Because what we want is to spark all of those emotions and all of those feelings in our readers. And I've always said that um, my most critical reader is like opposing counsel. You know, that they're really, they're going to get me, you know, that one thing that's wrong or that one piece of the story that doesn't quite hold together, man, they're going to be there for it. (laughs) Um, And as well, you know, as well you know. So yeah, you know, being a a Boston-based lawyer, mostly in the financial world, and then coming into the writing world, it's so different, but it's also kind of (laughs) logical when you think about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, listening to you explain that makes, makes so much sense. And, you know, they, they do say like a, a, good, a good law argument is like almost like a performance or a story that, that hooks the you know, jury or the judge Absolutely. or what have you to, mm-hmm. to help influence decision. And that's what you do when you write fiction. I mean, you know what I mean? So that, that was like a cool way to think about it. So, so was it when you left law to pursue writing. I mean, you, you have all those skills as a lawyer. But that's a lot of years to spend at school. Then it clearly upsets your parents, right? To move into writing fiction. Why? Were you just disillusioned with being a lawyer or were you like- No, no. Well, you know
1: that um, when it comes to writing and becoming an author, sometimes it's really not a choice. Sometimes uh-huh. something burns inside of you so brightly that you just have to, have to get it out. Mm-hmm. And and that's really what happened with me. Um, I, you know, had a decent career and, and but there was always this buzz in, in the back of my head that, you know, I tried a lot of different um, um, at, creative career outlets as mm-hmm. far as Um, you know, getting involved in different teams or different disciplines, whether it was marketing or investments, et cetera. But there was always this, this, this vibration in the back of my head. And finally I decided, okay, I'm going to give myself the gift of time. I'm just going to, you know, focus on writing. And within probably six or seven months, I had the first draft of my first book and it was, um, just a really cathartic almost process. I had never really experienced anything like it before. And as an author, you know, that once you tune into that passion, uh, it it just keeps on going. And so I gave myself that gift of time. And I said, I'm just going to see.
0: Well, Good. Yep. Look at and look at what you've created. I mean, and we're going to get into the success that you've had around your books here in a second. But like, Good for you for following that, that buzz. I do believe that like we, it's almost like our soul or the universe tells us like, we know what we really want to be doing with this one beautiful life we have. Right. And good on you for following that. Right. So many people ignore that feeling or ignore that pull. And like that pull is the thing that you're actually supposed to be doing with your life. So you stepped right into that. And, and you gave yourself that gift to, to put this thing down on paper and look at what it's, it, look what it's boomed into, which is what we should probably get into here. Right. So <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. So do so you tell us about your, your horse books, talk to us about, you know, and, and I'd like to understand why horses, right. So tell us about your books and why, you know, books that are based around horses. Why that?
1: Mm, that's a which came first, a chicken or the egg. Right. Um, <laughs> you know. uh, first off, I grew up around horses. I've always had horses. I grew up on a dairy farm. I always had horses in my backyard. Um, English hunting, uh, um, flat work, fence work, That those were my disciplines, unlike Western uh, disciplines. Uh, and I really do believe that being, um, you know, living a, a variety, doing a variety of things in your life, it, it, a writer's brain is like a junk drawer. Everything pulls into it. <laughs> so so when this character popped into my head, um, she immediately was in the middle of the horse world uh, as a world-class equestrian. And I knew exactly who she was. I knew her biases, her fears, her loves. I knew everything about her. And then I also knew that um, I'm a mystery writer and a crime writer. So uh, this, th- my three books um, that feature world-class equestrian Jessica Wyeth unfold the story of uh, Jessica, who was falsely accused of murder And as she was clearing her name, she uncovers the business and the money behind a terrorist cell, and it's a Boston-based cell of the IRA. And the horse world comes into play in so many different ways that I wasn't fully aware of when I wrote book one, but as I got to, you know, started to write more and more um, book two and book three, I completely... uh, filled in the details and the suspense and the story points with all of these different nooks and crannies of the horse world so being a world-class equestrian and it, it just, she doesn't even have to be world-class equestrian but i think that that makes it interesting for the readers it puts them into a different world and lets them Uh, rise up a little bit in their equestrian aspirations, because not Mm -hmm. everyone is a world-class equestrian. Mm -hmm. Um, And also putting it into the horse world, I was able to humanize her because sometimes horses were the only Here's
0: my kitty. I love that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're all with authors. Like, so, th- so those of us not, those of you not watching us on YouTube, Connie's cat just walked behind her and curled it, its tail right around her head. And it's so funny in so many author interviews I've been doing this occurs. Like our furry friends will come into the room and like kind of hang out behind because we can't write without them. Right. You know, so obviously that's, right. that's their writing companion.
1: <laughs> Love that. that, that that's fun. right. That's right. And also I have to, you have to know that she's going to be a bigger pest if I lock her out of my room, than <clears throat> out of my office, than if I just
0: <laughs> let her do her thing. Okay. So we were talking about, um, my- your books and she, you made her a world-class equestrian because it gives people something to ask, uh, aspire to. And you were talking about how like, you, you, when you were first writing, you weren't sure that the equestrian stuff was going to come in, but it sort of started showing up and then it became a part of the story. That, that's what... it,
1: It's very true because first uh, it was a part of the story as far as setting was concerned. You know, mm. um, it was a beautiful uh, horse farm up in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Uh, And it was almost an equestrian park with fences and, you know, it was just the setting came to life and who she was. Uh, And then also the horse piece came into play as far as who Jessica was, that sometimes the horses were the only... Being she could confide in and really understand her mm-hmm. so there was that connection that you were able to unfold a tale by using the horses as part of it and as an equestrian you know you have a good day you have a bad day that horse knows what's in your heart the moment you walk into the barn and it's just amazingly freeing mm-hmm. so Jessica had that aspect as well But also I used it in the first book, as I said, she was um, accused of murder and she went into hiding. She assumed a new identity. But the one thing she couldn't hide about herself was her affinity, skill, and passion for horses. And she changed her discipline. She went from, you know, uh, um, doing some light fence work into hunter pace and hunting. And it was her skill and acumen in a major event that made people recognize her. They said, wait a second, there's only one person I know who could ride like that, who could do that. And that was this young lady back in Massachusetts. And from that moment, so from that moment of being recognized, then obviously the story had even more layers to it. But that was another funny way of using... Horses. Right. You know, it, and what I do in each book is I feature one horse discipline. So in the first, it was thoroughbred racing, which is what her family did, and uh, hunt work, hunt, uh, hunting. And then in the second book, it was steeplechase, which is kind of like hunter pace on steroids. Mm-hmm. And then in the third book, uh, it was therapeutic riding and therapeutic horsemanship. Because then, as my life progressed, I became a uh, a volunteer at a therapeutic riding center mm. so I wove in uh, the just the amazing transformations I saw in people with the horse the equine therapy etc, and that too became you know another another thread so when you ask how did your you know horse world impact your writing and then my writing also impacted my horse world by mm. what I was doing. so um it's just been uh it's been an amazing journey uh, and it's been so much fun to meet people uh, accomplished equestrians themselves and also those maybe we'll call them hopeful hopeful <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know and I love this because you are lit up. Like this is the whole point of being alive and being a writer or following whatever passion is there for you. You are lit up by the work that you're doing and the books oh, yeah. that you're writing. And I can mm-hmm. totally resonates. And this is how I felt about you the first time we met, like how lit up you were about just mm-hmm. writing and meeting other writers and horse the horse world. And so I wanted to um talk a little bit more obviously about your books, because this is the equestrian author spotlight. But do you have your books there? And can you hold up the covers of your books for folks that are watching I us sure on YouTube? And I tell sure us, can. Yeah. Tell us the names of your books and tell us, you know, your, your covers are unique. Can you talk to us about how you came up with the idea for your covers as well? Sure. I'll, I'll hold this one up. And this is the
1: first book, the charity. And that's a barn, uh, you know, barn fire, which is uh, a terror terrifying thought for anyone with horses or animals and then you see a a shadowy figure here so that's the first book the inspiration for that cover is as i said i grew up on a dairy farm and my family was a target of an arson arsonist when i was a young child And I have images that I can share with you later about the barn on fire, et cetera. And it was a tremendous, it was a cataclysmic event for the family as well you can imagine. Not only having their livelihood burned to the ground, but also knowing that you were targeted, Mm -hmm. that it was intentional. You were a victim of a crime. So the barn fire was something that really... also infused my story with suspense and infused drama into the story so that's why i felt it was really important to do that as as the first Um, and then as i got to know the characters and as you might know writing your books you get to know your characters Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, as i said jessica uncovers the tale of Um, the business behind a Boston-based cell of the IRA. Well, you can't have the IRA without having something in Ireland. And if you know anything about Ireland, you know that they had a very uh, recent, uh, between Northern Ireland, um, trying to get their independence from the uh, United Kingdom, uh, England, that, uh, you know, you go to Ireland and that Period of strife was called The Troubles. So the second book um, is called The Troubles, and it takes place over in uh, Northwest Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And as people will know, that once you uh, go to Ireland, there is a tremendous affinity with horses there. There is a tremendous history and culture and skill set embedded in, in the people there. So it w- was a logical transition to go from. I see her in the background. Um, <laughs> the cat has
0: so reappeared. The cat
1: has returned. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. But I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was a natural transition to go from a, uh, a tale based in Massachusetts and in Kentucky, horse country than to bring those characters over to Ireland. Because as Jessica unfolds the tale, she begins to understand how her family is tied directly to the Troubles. So it made sense to go deeper into the history of that time and then also to bring the books forward um, uh, into into Ireland. Then the third book um, is is The Wake, and if you do know ireland and the lore of ireland you know that the rose is a very symbolic flower as far as the protest songs and the protest uh poetry and literature within um, within ireland so the rose is very symbolic uh, also both all of my titles have dual meanings where the charity is not that charitable. The Mm -hmm. troubles is the troubles in Northern Ireland, but it's also troubles of the heart because Mm -hmm. we we're beginning to question, has Jessica fallen in love with the right person? Is this the right, you know, troubles of the heart, troubles of the family? So it goes deeper into that. And then the wake is something that well you if you've ever um seen or learned about an irish wake, you know that it's part of keening and sorrow love and song laughter it has all of these different things uh, to it but it also the wake is the turbulence behind a boat mm. so a boat can be on smooth water but behind it is all of this turbulence so the wake has these two meanings it's uh, love, laughter, keening, and sorrow, and then this turbulence after the event. And then how does that, how does that settle? Um, I and, love that. And, I love
0: that dual meaning. That's really cool. I, I, I think that that's really unique and thoughtful and, and very deep, obviously. I wanted to ask you, um, on the covers of the books, it, it there are not any horses on the covers of your books. I was wondering, did you choose that intentionally or was that recommended? I did.
1: Well, I have to say that on the back of each, you okay. have, so this is the troubles and then you have um, stone circles in Ireland and uh, the steeplechase and stone cottage. And then, as I said, on the third you have therapeutic mm. riding, you have a horse in a wheelchair, Boston back, back bay. And then I don't know if you can see this, but it's a, a, a woman holding a rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is um, in Belfast, an actual news uh, picture from a woman fighting for her freedom in the streets of Belfast. So I do have horses, not on the front covers, but on the back. And that was very strategic because I'm also not necessarily a, a pure horse book writer. Uh, I write crime, as I said, I write crime, mystery and thrillers, too. And there is something in the book world, as you might be familiar with, that, boy, once you get niched into a genre, you are in that genre. And I felt that these stories weren't just for horse lovers. Mm. Uh, And if people thought of them as horse books, they might think of them more as uh, young adults or something a little softer. And my books are on the edgier side of that so I did not feel comfortable putting a horse on the cover.
0: That makes a lot of sense but you did pay homage to the horse on the back cover with, with some pictures there and and I, and I think a lot of equestrian authors do even though the horse is so important to them they do aspire to perhaps maybe one day you know branch out of the genre and write broader or maybe write something without a horse I don't know I've, I've thought about that too because there are a lot of us that are are writing across genres and, and not always writing just about horses. So that, that was a very, very good strategic move. Now you talk a lot about um, in, your, in, your, in this particular book series uh, about Ireland and some of the things that are going on there and how she, yeah, how she gets kind of tingled up in this now. So how did you research that? I mean, this is fiction, but obviously there's got to be a research element to this novel because you're writing about something that actually occurred, correct? Like... Yes,
1: yes, yes, I did. Um, first off, I used a lot of family history to come into it um, as far as uh, stories of immigration coming from uh, coming over from Ireland, etc. But I also did a lot of research on the timing involved, um, you know, what was going on behind the scenes, but it's not so academic or historical. What I really wanted to know was how these historical events impacted the women. Mm. And that to me was very important because not only is this a horse story and a um, solving a murder and suspense, etc., but it's also the tale of a mother and daughter. It's a, really a multi-generational tale. So as the mother was brought up in these really difficult economic times, not only for the men to be unemployed, but also difficult for women. And if you are a woman with a young child or pregnant and maybe not married or what's the family story is, what are the decisions that you make to protect that child? And how how does that decision impact then? the the you know the the lives not only the lives of the mother but the lives of the daughter that happened so uh a little little spoiler with that but um it was the research involved was more to understand how the history impacted these people Mm. not necessarily you know what went on with you know the good friday accords or whatever whatever the event was. But the bombings, the people, um, the motivations are very, very true. In fact, the first book, The Charity, was one of um, a handful of fiction books that actually made it onto a, um, it was a securityinfo.net website, which is a website clearinghouse for terrorism and counterterrorism books. And the reason why, I know. Whoa. And, the re- I know. <laughs> and the reason why was because um, I understood the motivations for what brings people to the act of a crime. Well, how passionate do they have to be in order to enact a crime? And then what happens on the other side of that, you know, uh, post traumatic stress and repressed mm-hmm. memories. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it was uh, the. Uh, webmaster, uh, the organizers of that website said that I, that rarely did they read a book that really captured the razor's edge between good and evil. Because you have to think that if you are a freedom fighter or you are a terrorist, what name you call yourself or what name you are called really is a point of view. Mm. You know, you know, to us you might be a terrorist, but to someone else you're a passionate freedom fighter. So that gray area of good and evil I found very compelling, and I plunked one of my characters right in the center of that. Um, And then that's how you get to question: Is Jessica in love with the right person or not? What are the forces that are going to pull this person? Are they going to be pulled to the freedom fighter side, the good guy side? Or are they going to be pulled into more of the dark terrorist side? And, wow. and what are the forces at work at that person? And what happens when you're in love with that person?
0: Wow, that is so intriguing. And then, okay, so, the, so how did you research that? Did you set up interviews with people that had been through these experiences? Or did you read other, you know, biographies? Or did, how did you, how did you I, do this? I did um, a
1: lot of reading of Jerry Adams' biographies, um, so I understood that. In fact, there were a couple of real life stories that i that were absolutely in, inspirational to a few mm-hmm. scenes I wrote, such as women and young children, you know those big, big prams, you know those huge prams with the you know, baby carriages with the big wheels mm-hmm. well. In uh, one scene that Jerry Adams wrote, and I was inspired to write something similar, that um, underneath where the babies were lying with their stinky diapers were food, guns, ammunition, bandages, medicine, and they knew that as soon as the soldiers came and they saw this wet, stinking, crying baby. They weren't gonna search in that pram anymore, so off they went through the peace line and were able to then smuggle in the needed supplies. So uh, the research came with reading autobiographies and also talking with people. As I began to delve into the Irish networks within Boston, um I would talk to people and I learned things like uh when um uh people wear a t-shirt and they say 26 plus uh 26 plus six equals one. Well they're talking about Ireland and Northern Ireland, the 26 counties plus the six northern uh counties of Northern Ireland equals one country. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a very passionate feel. So I've listened. Very carefully, not only to the building blocks of history, what was happening when, but also how it impacted the people. And that's what I wanted to bring to life to, you know, to how would it impact someone living without the ability to uh, fend for their family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, that is so fascinating and and well done. And thank you for taking us through, you know, what 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 was compelling you to write this book and do and how you did your research. So so with all that information, and obviously this is a fictional you know trilogy. But is is there a message in those novels that because you cut you touched on a lot of things like a woman protecting your child, that, like, that edge between good and evil. Can you, is there one thing or a message in your novels that you hope people, your readers walk away from after they've completed the trilogy? Mm,
1: I'm, i if there's one thing, hmm, I have, that's a good question. Um, and I think that there really wasn't one message to come across, but there is. Actually, when I think about it, maybe if I could distill it down to one, and that is um, the, the power of fate, mm. the power of faith. Uh, it is not, even though Ireland is a highly Christian nation, of course, it's not just a, a, a Christian message that comes across. What comes across is um, uh, placing your worries in the hands of a, a, another power. Uh, to feel the presence of something else working on your life that is outside of your own. So, if there's one message that comes across, I have to say that it would be that good good prevails. Mm. Uh, that there are more things to this life than than what we see.
0: Mm. I like that. That is very, very cool. So it's almost like being, you know, kind of like um, coaxing people to sort of be in tune with more than that. That's just going on in here. Like there is this outer world that's impacting us and, and, you know, to be aware of that. I I love that. That is, that's Mm -hmm. so cool. I wanted to shift a little in the conversation now and you're, You're just phenomenal. I'm so having fun with this interview. Um, I, you know, as I was going around on your website again, I noticed that you do participate in a lot of events and, and conferences. In fact, you mentioned earlier in the interview we met in New York City for the first time at my first Equus Film Festival, and have had this this cool relationship ever since since then, which is which is really exciting. But um, and and at the Equus Film Festival, you've been a two time winner of the best English fiction literary award. So. Way to go, you're an award-winning author. But um, how do you learn about the events you attend and how has being a part of of events, because you you do more than just horse events, but how has being part of these events benefited your author career? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, sure. Um, First off, I'm a tremendous advocate of getting involved in, in very robust writing groups. I am the president of the New England chapter of Sisters in Crime. Mm. And Sisters in Crime is a national organization that has over 4,000 members to it. Uh, it's actually an international uh, organization. And they promote uh, women authors and diverse voices in crime and uh, mystery writing. And being involved in uh, New England in this community has been a tremendous benefit. Sisters in Crime just rises all voices up. Hmm. Uh, We're Everything from New York Times bestselling authors uh, right on down to folks who are, maybe they're just passionate readers or there's someone with an idea buzzing around their head. And what I found about being involved in these organizations and being an active member, not just paying your dues and sitting back and letting it happen, but being an active member that uh, that you learn about things, you learn about different events. So I have been um, featured speaker at a lot of different literary festivals around here. I was just at the Boston, the largest one so far is the Boston Book Festival, where I held a panel for, uh, five different authors, again, all New York Times, bestselling authors. And that was wonderful. I mean, Boston Book Fest gets around 25,000, 30,000 folks uh, during their two-day event. So it's just this thriving, thriving event. Might even be higher. I'm not quite sure how many. Uh, Then everything from a literary festival in Woodstock, Vermont, and different speaking engagements. And once you start doing those things... That then you find that the events come to you rather than you seeking out the events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I, I guess if your audience is um, avid readers, that's wonderful. But I'm sure that your audience too um, includes authors with either a few books under their belt or looking to you know promote their own. And for me, part of my author platform, if you will, um, is speaking, but not just about me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, firmly believe that a rising tide floats all ships. So I'm, a, I believe yeah, in that. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so I, I firmly believe that, um, being a member mm-hmm. while well, being a president of Sisters in Crime and really, uh, Woo-hooing all of those authors out there and mm-hmm. and giving them you know every opportunity to speak, go to libraries, go to book groups, go to different um community events when you are able to do that, I consider it paying it forward
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and it comes back to you but it it doesn't come back to you necessarily in oh, I got an event for her, so now she'll get an event for me it doesn't it comes back and just that warm reward you get from being a part of a community. And I firmly believe in all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's another hour's worth of conversation when you want to talk about promotion and what it takes, et cetera. But um, as I said, part of my author platform is, uh, um, is, is supporting others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very much so, very much so.
0: Well, I, and I love that. And I, and and I think that we've got a really group, group of good people that love horses that are writing about horses. I mean, we all, you know, support each other and like that, you know, that's, that's a big thing. I I believe in it too. Authors unite, please. You know, we're stronger when we work together to support each other. So good on you for taking care of your fellow authors Um, because being an author is hard and sometimes it's isolated and you, you feel maybe by yourself, but there is a community of people out there to support you, whether you're beginning or you're like way down the road. Like we all are here to take care of each other. I love that. Mm -hmm. Something else that I found really intriguing um, from a marketing aspect um, in a promotional aspect, when I was looking around your website is you attend book clubs in person or via Skype. Yes can you, can you talk to us about how an author can prepare for a successful author book club event and you know in sort of why that's important uh, for you in your, in your offer career?
1: Well, uh, well, book clubs are easy. Book mm-hmm. clubs hardly need any preparation whatsoever. Cause after all you wrote the book they're reading. So, you know, you know, that's the easy part about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the biggest preparation is, you know, do you want Chardonnay or Pinot, you know, <laughs> Pinot Grigio? I mean, that might be the hardest decision of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, so before preparing for that uh, it's, basically just making yourself accessible. Mm -hmm. So many times I meet readers and they're almost intimidated to meet the author. And it's like, what are we doing? Are we, you know, have our feather boa and our cigarettes on long, you know, (laughs) uh, that, you know, the long handle thing? No, we're just regular people. And I think that to prepare the best is to make that host or hostess just feel welcome and just feel a part of the whole journey. Um, I've spent many delightful evenings you know talking to people in living rooms and libraries etc. So preparation for book groups specifically is easy. Um, If I'm a member of a panel so there is someone asking me questions, that also is easy because you want you want to understand the theme the moderator sets up the messaging etc so that's easy it does take some preparation because you want to know your other people Mm -hmm. involved and again it's never about just me, it mm-hmm. is also about them. I want people to know that I'm aware of their careers, their most recent book, you know, the most recent cool thing that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Thank you Facebook for keeping us all plugged in, <laughs> and Twitter <laughs> totally. yeah. um, for that, but, um, so that's easy. But then when it comes to being a moderator or a keynote speaker, and I've been um, keynote in several writers conferences around um, New England, that it's um, that's preparation
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: because not only do you need to know your panelists, but also you need to know your um, your audience. What do they expect to hear? What do they need from you? Mm. Um, and so preparing to be a moderator um, is, is difficult and then preparing to be a keynote is a whole nother thing because then you are the one uh, there for that 90 minutes and you need to make sure that they are getting content, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to make sure that the content is digestible to them because they're hearing it. They're not necessarily seeing it. Um, So there's a lot of preparation that that goes into Mm -hmm. that. Um, One of the keynotes I did was um, the legal, the legal constructs of writing a good, Uh, Mystery, which I touched base on just a little bit at the top of the interview, um, and then unfolded that to say, you know, a legal brief has three distinct sections. Well, a really well-crafted novel also has three acts, and they're very similar in what their constructs are. So um, anyway, but you really want to Understand very clearly what your message is, what your audience is expecting, and then deliver. And if that means that you're practicing in front of a mirror for you know two days ahead of time, then that's what you do. And
0: I would I would imagine that you're and and you are so right. Like if if you are selected to be a a keynote or to give a a speech, do the work, show up prepared, show up polished, and you you're probably going to be nervous, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so. all the more reason to know your audience, know your topic, know your speech. So you can, you can be a little more relaxed in your preparation, right? It's so, so very important. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine that your experience in law probably helped you be an excellent presenter to, you know, readers groups or you get like, you're fantastic on this podcast or, or as a keynote speaker, because there's that element of performance to delivering a good, you know, law, what, what, what do we call those? Uh, I know. And,
1: and, and now, and now you're going to know this is something that no one knows about me at all, Carly. Oh my! Is that, is that when I was a little girl, I was incredibly shy. I, you know, even meeting, uh, you know, grown-up aunts and uncles, it was just, you know, I would shrink back and not say anything, and kind of, you know, hi, and that was it. And uh, well, that's changed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, so um, the law career, um, what that did, that my legal training um, helped strip away my writing and get to the core of what I was saying Mm. um, and then how to build up to that message. That was the strip of my, my legal writing. And then uh, it, my other careers in, uh, in really financial marketing and sales, that's when I honed um, presentation skills.
0: Mm. So mm-hmm. Awesome. Isn't it great how for some of us our corporate, background and our and our training has really enabled us to to work for ourselves and 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 Mm -hmm. sell our own books
1: absolutely well as i said too the writer's Mm -hmm. brain is like a junk drawer everything goes into (laughs) it and you never know you're going to reach in the back and all of a sudden pull something forward and it's going to be just what you need so
0: Exactly. I love, I love that analogy, the junk drawer of the mind. So I, I wanted to ask you too, I'm, I'm sure listeners are going to be curious. Um, uh, what do you prefer to self publish or are you traditionally published? Like what, which, which uh, I'm you a
1: going? yeah, I'm, I'm a hybrid publisher. So I'm both um, independently published and also traditionally published. Uh, and there are benefits to both. So I really couldn't say, oh, you can only be traditional or, oh, you can only be, you know, and I say independent versus self because um, as an independent publisher, you are a publisher with all of the skills and team behind you. So um, I say independent publishing versus um, self.
0: I do. I do. I prefer that as well. I think that that is, that is the truth. And that's what we're doing here. Um, The hybrids or we're independently published, just like there's independent film, just like there's independent music in the artist. We are independent. We are not self. Right. So that's exactly
1: right. And then, you know, before I launched off into my fiction career, I had been a featured columnist for Bloomberg Business Week and some other I don't well nature, um, biotechnology, some other periodicals where I certainly had writing chops, if you mm-hmm. want to say that. Uh but um so that was, I mean, I understood the the drafting process, the editorial process, the meeting reader expectation process, etc. So then when I transitioned into publishing, it was very easy to understand. Um, you know, what, was, what it was going to take in order to be, um, to put out a good quality manuscript, to put out a good quality book. Uh, and then also on my traditional side, you, you know, when, when an, uh, an editor says, you know, have you, have you thought about approaching a scene this way? Well, you know what? Listen, because that editor knows the industry and knows what's going on. And they're also a reader. So if they wanted that scene approached differently, there's something there. I know a lot of authors who have gone the independent route and reject that kind of editorial uh, feedback, and that's at their peril. Yeah. And so, you know, getting a great relationship with a top editor is better than having your own tutor you know mm-hmm. your own writing tutor because it's it's a it's a practice of a craft it's a craft you, you're you always working on it mm-hmm. so there's there's um always something to be learned
0: mm-hmm. and 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 i i think that that is actually sort of where the future for authors actually lives is in this hybrid uh, model. So I, I think we're seeing more of that happen. And I think that independent publishing, like I always say, and I've said this, you know, probably 100 times on this interview, but with independent publishing comes great power, right? So you have to be responsible for the product you're putting in the in the world. And you kind of you have a lot of power. So you have to make sure you're delivering the very best product. And that does mean working with editors, working with graphic designers, having, you know, beta readers and and listening to feedback, right? So So you do, you are, you have to be responsible for that end end result.
1: Right. And that's very, that's very interesting when you say, you know, listening for that feedback. Um, Initially I wrote the charity as a standalone. I Mm. thought that that was it. It was just going to be book one. Uh, Then my readers asked me, well, what happened next? What happened to these two people that you put together? And I knew the answer, but I also knew it not through one book. I knew it you know, got me into writing a a third. And I said, that's it. It's going to be a trilogy. I can't just have these, you know, characters live in my life so much. Um, But then what's very interesting is for my own personal career, um, I, um, I have actually two more books written. And I am really looking at those as more of a traditional piece. Now that I have a very good platform, I have a readership, etc. I'm veering off a little bit more into, into traditional.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you, you touched on a really great point there too. I think, you know, I used to work in the music industry. I was an artist development representative for Sony Music and then Universal Music. And what we looked for, because we were the distribution arm, right? So what we looked for uh, as things changed and grew, is somebody that had established a brand and a following, right? So a lot of independent authors they're building a brand, they're they're creating a following, they're creating readers, and then I think the traditional publishers are starting to look for because now the expectation is that as authors, we do all the marketing, no matter whether we're independent published or traditional. That's exactly published.
1: right. Yes, yeah, yeah, we do the marketing yes.
0: ourselves. So if we're bringing value to a traditional publisher. Through building a brand and a following of readers, then I think there's more inclination toward traditional publishers now to to sign an author, right? Um, but then, on the flip side, as an independent author, when you are signed, you do give up you give up some control over how things go with your book, right? So yeah. how is that for you because I mean, you obviously have a law background, so like you know what to look for in a contract yeah. to make sure you're not yeah. signing away things, right?
1: Right, right. And I'm and I'm very I, I I'm a very uh, unique beast in the sense that um, I know how to market, I know how to do the business side of things mm-hmm. as well as the creative side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I wish I could get rid of the business side and focus a little bit more on the creative and vice versa. (laughs) Um, but you, you, but a couple of things, um, first off, you mentioned author brand Mm -hmm. and my brand is that I write tense, twisting thrillers with a strong moral code. Mm. So no matter what I'm writing, whether it's, um, a, a, a new series that I'm writing or even whether it's my short stories there's a right that comes out at the end of it. And that's part of, you know, my author brand. And then when you're doing your your marketing um, and you're so right because you're, you're marketing yourself, whether you are traditionally published or independently published, it's going to fall on you, whether you've got... Um, uh, you know, a contract for five books or not at a certain point when that catalog has run its course and most publishers put out a catalog um, seasonally or biannually, when that catalog has run its course and they start to market the next one, well, guess what? You're not done marketing your book. What do you mean you only got uh, eight weeks or six months worth of um, publisher attention on that? It It falls on you. Mm-hmm. you know so so you're going to have to know what is going to be required of you and that author brand is very important because when you know that author brand then everything you put out in that in those airways stays stays on message and people have a good sense of, of who you are so even when I'm talking about you know the business side of my uh, of publishing or about the history inside my books readers get a sense that, oh, okay, you know, this, this is a gal. Um, she's smart. She talks smart. She mm-hmm. writes smart. So yeah, I'm going to spend some time in her pages.
0: <laughs> that sounds kind of funny, but that's what we do. Makes, that makes so much sense. I mean, to stay on brand is, is important and, and you've done a very good job of creating that, whether you're writing books with horses in them or not. Somebody who loves those books that comes maybe from the horsehold will also enjoy your other books because you write right true to what you've created for yourself.
1: Well, and it's funny because as I decided to write my new series, um, I had mentioned that I had volunteered at a therapeutic writing center Mm -hmm. uh, and have phenomenal stories about that experience. But one population that I worked with were women survivors of human trafficking. Mm. So they were using equine therapy to regain a sense of control and personal power. And we did mostly groundwork and you can imagine Even for someone who has not been traumatized by a life event, having this massive animal respond to you, even with emotions you might not be completely aware of, um, is a really phenomenal experience. And I was there just to be the horse handler, to make sure the horse didn't do anything expected that would impact these women as these women. Um, went through their therapy session with mm-hmm. um, with a therapist there, etc. So I listened to their stories, and I, Carly, I was absolutely blown away. I was absolutely blown away because it completely shattered what my perceptions of what human trafficking is who is involved in it. And immediately you think human trafficking, oh, they're drug addicts. Oh, it's third world, you know, it doesn't happen here, etc. But one of the women that I worked with, um, was, uh, born up in West, born in Western, um, Massachusetts, um, not a drug addict, but what her mother was. And basically her mother was, Yeah. You know, take the kid off my hands. I'm, (gasps) I'm, you know, can't. And that's how this, this child got into the trafficking network. And I was blown away. I mean, so many different stories came up and I was absolutely galvanized by this. Mm -mm. So that became the, the trigger and the spark for, um, the new books that I'm, that I'm writing now.
0: First of all, thank you for your contribution to these, you know, to the therapeutic writing and to these women and for listening to their stories and giving of your time. I mean, that is so huge. And it's just, it it breaks my heart to to hear just that one story. And I'm sure there's plenty of others. Um, And one of my questions, actually, as we're starting to wrap up the interview is, what are you curious about right now? And you just mentioned you know, uh, this new series that is kind of based off of what, what you've been exposed to through the therapeutic writing volunteer time that you're doing. Can you tell us, can you expand just a little bit more on, on what, what you're curious about and where you're taking that? Um, what I'm curious
1: about right now uh, really is the trafficking business inside of New England primarily and what that looks like and, and who's involved in it, et cetera. So I'm really curious about how to to shatter the preconceptions that I had, how to shatter those preconceptions in my readers. Mm. So that's what I'm evolving to right now. I've written a few short stories that have gotten published in Mystery Weekly and um, some other areas, and a a couple of them have been sparked by um, trafficking uh, Mm. ideas too. So um, always, I find that that thread of um, equestrian or therapeutic horsemanship, I find it so interesting. And I really do think that the general population of the U.S. are very interested about this right now. And it's coming up more and more Mm -hmm. with that. I think I just read something that uh, um, war veterans... Military Mm -hmm. veterans have now been approved through their health insurance to get therapeutic riding experience Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. um, uh, equine therapy based. Um, And that uh, is is fascinating. So I really feel that staying in that vein in a sense to be true to author brand and who I am, et cetera, I think that that's going to find a thread in a lot of, in a lot of my writing. And actually, as I'm, as I'm thinking about this, um, in the wake with therapeutic writing, this actually got an endorsement from the CEO of the the professional association of therapeutic horsemanship international. Uh, She, she read this book and just, was thrilled because it's a mainstream thriller. It's not a horse book per se. We talked about that earlier. Yeah. Um, and it uh, captured what therapeutic writing is on both sides. Someone who's involved in it as a, as a participant, as a writer, and someone who is um, looking to coax the best out of the, that writer. Um, in, in different ways. So it saw through through both. And I will give a shout out to Windrush Farm who gave, um, that's where I do my volunteer work. And it, they also gave permission to use their name in, in the book itself. So um, it's kind of fun as people read it. They're like, you know, I know that place. I know those people. So <laughs> that, that's kind of fun. So what I'm curious about right now is that um, you might know that Clint Eastwood has a new movie coming out right now called um, Richard Jewell, mm-hmm. who was the individual that was falsely accused of the Centennial Park bombing at the 1996 Olympics. The reason why I mentioned that is because again, um, in in the wake uh, there, it, it, it revolves around that bombing at uh, Centennial Park and how there was a rush to justice to find the person to pin that bombing on someone uh, and wow. you know mini, mini spoiler you yeah well I won't know I no, mean no spoilers <laughs> no, no more spoilers,
0: spoilers. <laughs> read the books. you got to read the books because they're like this fascinating journey through like all of this all of these topics that we've talked about which is so awesome, and um, you know thank you again for for volunteering your time to therapeutic work and and so the the series that you're thinking about next that will explore some of these um, stories in human trafficking and, and the, the beautiful work that equine therapy can do for people. see like uh, the the equestrian I've read an article that horse horse people live longer than you know the average person that isn't interacting with horses and and our secret is getting out they're healing they heal you right so and so we want that message out there these are beautiful emotional Mm -hmm. connected beautiful animals that help us work through so many issues that we're dealing with in our life so thank you for putting a spotlight on this so is it going to be like a fiction series or is this going to be?
1: Yes, it'll definitely, it'll definitely be, um, fiction. Uh, so, you know, so so stay tuned. So stay tuned on that. I'll circle back. I'll let you know when it comes out. I was going to circle back.
0: (laughs) Please, please do. I I would love to have you back on the show to talk again about where you're heading with your career and, and to talk about this series and explore this topic. I think in a little more depth, because I think this is, something I agree with you, we should put a spotlight on this and and tell the stories and get get information out there under both realms, right? What it's like to be human trafficked and and how that happens to people. And I can't believe that that's happening in this day and age, but it is. And then the power of working with a horse and and the therapeutic benefits of being around someone who is um, educated in, in equine therapy, right? So I would love to explore just those topics with you a little bit more when you get a little further oh, sure. along with your books. Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: That, that in and of itself would be um, a, a whole show. I have a tremendous stories about my experiences there. and, and Let's do it. And again, that's, that's a way of paying it forward. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk about um, you know, equine therapy and um, therapeutic horsemanship, It's absolutely not to promote my books at all. It's to get the word out about how transformational it is. Um, So it's something that I, I, I am very passionate about and would love to talk more about it.
0: Let's do that. We will certainly circle back and I will have Connie on the show again so we can explore where she's taking her next book series and talk about this topic a little bit more deeply. And I wanted to say too, that is the beautiful thing about being an author is you can put a spotlight on things and you can tell a story and you can give readers escape, but you can also like, I think offer something that gives people an opportunity to think in a different way about things that are going on that are, that you're close to, but that can also change, change perceptions and how people think about things. And, and you are doing that so obviously. So I want to say thank you for, for being a guest on the show today. You have shared so much awesome information and. Also set the set the stage for us to have a follow-up conversation, which is fantastic. but we, today will you tell for, for now? will you tell people where they can find you and your books to, to learn a little bit more about you and what you do?
1: Sure. Um, obviously the books are out on Amazon, Barnes and Noble ebook, paperback. Um, it's under the Jessica Trilogy, so you can find it there, but you can also find it on my website, which um, is I'll say it and then I'll spell my last name. It's Connie Johnson. Hambley.com and Hambley is spelled H A M is in man, B as in boy, L E Y. So, ConnieJohnsonHambley.com. And once you get onto my website, there's a wealth of information about events that I'm doing, books that I have out, um, other um, short stories that I'm having published, etc. Uh, and then also on Twitter, very active folks, you know, <laughs> follow me on Twitter at, at Connie Hambley. Uh, i'm also on Facebook, uh, so you 'll find me Pinterest and also my blog. but once you get onto my website, then I have the social buttons and I also have um, short stories published in best New England crimes uh, stories so uh, these are traditionally published and you know anthologies are fun i don 't know there you go anthologies are fun because it 's like a a, a chocolate sampler you know you get the chocolate box and you've got all these different flavors and you want coconut or you want caramel nougat and that's what (laughs) you know the anthologies do
0: (laughs) (laughs) and Connie you're fantastic and I will link to all of uh, Connie's social channels and her website and her books in the show notes so you can go there too to to get easy access to all those links but yes Connie's website is very good and you can get to all of her different places and learn more about her on her website I think I spent you know a, a while spinning around there because there's so much awesome information and great things to read including um, a story that she had written about the the arson that had happened on your dairy your dairy farm as a young person so that was um I read that and that was uh, an, a great adventure in and of itself and I'm sorry that happened to you and your family um but
1: but but it sparked <clears throat> a lot of ideas so it's um you know this many years later it, the pain has faded and now you just take from it what you can.
0: And that's, that's the thing. Um, You you know, nothing, everything happens and you're able to use it as a writer and and remember that like you, you, you have the power to overcome and these tragic things that happen, the pain seems to go away after a while. And then, and then we can take those ideas and we can create something from them or we can create things that, help other people, right? Which is exactly what you're doing with your writing too, with the therapeutic writing and the stories you're telling there. So thank you so much for the gift of your time, Connie. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Carly. So long, great to see you.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me visit my website carlycadecreative.com where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you so much for your support want a free guide to secrets of book authors gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox if you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted please let me know visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request I'd be happy to have you on the show too thank you for tuning in to the equestrian author spotlight podcast see you next time I'm your host Carly Cade creative writing makes my spurs jingle